0: This is the Monday, June fourth, two 2018 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes for a brand new episode every other Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore How I miss those old pals of mine The sawdust is gone from the floor Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.
1: Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back a few centuries to the Tudor and Stuart period of the British monarchy. Once there, we'll meet a prince who would have been the great King Henry the IX had his life not been cut tragically short in his teens. Our guide on this royal journey is Sarah Fraser, author of The Prince Who Would Be King, The Life and Death of Henry Stuart*, Henry Stewart's life, subject of the BBC Two documentary called The Best King We Never Had, is the last great forgotten Jacobian tale, lost in the turmoil of the Thirty Years' War and the sweeping changes taking place across Europe at the turn of the 17th century. Sarah Fraser won the 2012 first Scottish Book of the Year for her acclaimed debut The Last Highlander, which in 2016 became a New York Times ebook bestseller. She's a writer and regular contributor on TV and radio with a PhD in Ribald Gaelic poetry. Visit her online at sarahfraser.co.uk where you can find her speaking schedule and regular blog posts about the tumultuous Stuart era. You can also follow her on Twitter at Sarah underscore Fraser UK. Please note that that's Sarah with an H, and Fraser is spelled F-R-A-S-E-R. Okay, now that we've landed back in the days of a Europe rocked by upheaval and religious strife, to say nothing of gunpowder treason and plot, Let's join Sarah Fraser and meet The Prince Who Would Be King. I'm joined via Skype from the Scottish Highlands by Sarah Fraser, author of The Prince Who Would Be King, The Life and Death of Henry Stewart. Thank you so much for making time to chat with the History Author Show. And you're very welcome, Dean. I'm delighted to be talking with you. Well, I readily confess to you before we started recording that I'm certainly not a royal scholar. So many of the heirs and dukes and kings and the Roman numerals after their names, they tend to blur together. I think of Theodore Roosevelt after he was president of the United States and he toured all around Europe after he went through America. And he said, gosh, if I meet another king, I think I'm going to bite him because there, <laughs> there are so many, so many titles that he couldn't keep track of. They blur together, but I am a sucker for a a really good guy who ends up being a forgotten figure, especially one who tragically dies young. So I was happy that you introduced me to this fine young man. And from the moment I looked at the cover of The Prince Who Would Be King, I wanted to get to know him. He draws you in. It's a painting, not a photograph, of course, but it is really a striking image. And I wanted to ask you, having written the book and lived with him for so long in your head, What was that painting meant to say to us generations later when we looked at it? What did they think his life would be when they were painting this young man with such great potential and such great expectations? Well, you're right. There's an important visual statement being made in that picture.
2: It's the first royal action shot. He's only 10, and it's just after he's come to England from Scotland. He's standing, legs akimbo, and he's drawing his sword out at his feet. there is a dying stag, and one of his friends is holding it up for him, so he's about to dispatch it. It's about to get very bloody down there, and he's got one of those thousand mile stairs you know he's he's looking at us, looking at him, and he is saying effectively in Jacobean terms, "Check me out <laughs> and He's wearing, interestingly enough, one of the statements he's making is that he is the heir to Gloriana Elizabeth I, because he's wearing Tudor green and white. Those are the royal colours of the Tudors. The Stuarts, it's red and white. So he's saying, I am the heir to Gloriana. I will inherit her mantle as the defender of Protestant Europe. That's reinforced because, Underneath the titles, you, if you look in close on the cover, you can see there is a beautiful golden jewel enameled George, St. George and the Dragon. That's the emblem of the Garter Knights. And again, that is, he is the Protestant prince who is ready to thrust his sword down Catholic throats. Quite a lot going on in that picture. <laughs> and it's a great picture. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? Love of <laughs> colours.
1: Yeah, the colors, as you were speaking before you mentioned that about the green and gold, I was thinking that's one thing that makes it striking is when you point it out, you realize you don't see that color scheme so much. You don't see that green. And you can tell when you look that somebody spent a lot of time trying to put symbolism in it and trying to have the sword just almost in the scabbard that moment before he's going to draw it. In this case, to slay a beast, but he's also going to use it on people. We're supposed to realize, so he's almost has it out. If he had it fully out, that's a different young man. If he yeah. just has it at the side, all the way in, he's right on the cusp of his life, and that's what we read here. This is the young man we get to know in *The Prince Who Would Be King*. The journey begins not in 1594 with his celebrated birth, but when we, as readers, join you to find Henry Stuart's final resting place. Mm. Fittingly, it's almost 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 erased as you describe it, just as he had been from the historical record before you reintroduce us to him here. Take us back to that moment. How did you come across the Prince and start this journey of discovery that grew into this book? Well, there had been an exhibition here in 2012 called The Lost
2: Prince, and it was at the National Portrait Gallery down in London. And I went to see it and I thought, who is this boy? And I went to Westminster Abbey, which is, you know, the great burial place of the kings and queens of England. And I saw there it was so forlorn, a little wooden effigy. I mean, it's life size, but all that's left of him is his little wooden arms and legs. I mean, the head has gone. Mm. He had the first state funeral for a prince. Before that, they were only for monarchs and their consorts. So that's another sort of little sign that this was somebody held in high esteem who, as I said, has dropped more or less out of the national memory. And at his funeral, he was lifelike. I mean, it's almost like we have over here Madame Tussaud's waxworks. He had a waxwork head. He was dressed in his coronation robes when he was created Prince of Wales. And he was startlingly lifelike. And over the months, people pulled off little bits of him as souvenirs to remember him by. Little relics, really. And I just thought, what a mystery. We've got this little wooden peg doll, actually, although it's five foot eight tall, And we've got these wonderful pictures and images. And I wanted to go and find him. I think that's it, really. And I've got boys, you know. So I thought, I love a real,
1: active, energetic boy. I mean, he was just a very attractive figure to me. He's certainly that, just to go back to the cover, what skill that was brought into painting it. But he's just like, I'm sure, with your sons, and you ask them, stop, I want to take a picture of you for a moment, (laughs) and they can barely spare you, right, that split second of standing still. And that's that's the impression you get here, is that I'm in the middle of something here, and okay, I will give you this one moment to look at me, and then I'm going to move on. He had so much action, sense of himself, and yet you cite here a 2012 poll early in The Prince Who Would Be King, you set it up for us, showing just how far he's fallen out of our national memory, needless to say here in America, but also in the UK where you would think he would be remembered. So take us back to the time when his fame was at its peak, when people wanted to carve those pieces off. I always wonder what happens to those little bits of wood when you find them in your grandmother or grandfather's possessions. You say, what What did this little piece of wood mean? And you throw it away in these cases, probably because you don't know what it is unless they tell you. What did he mean to his contemporary Jacobian Britons as they watched him grow to manhood and then as they lost him at such a young age?
2: Well, as we're saying here, he's on the cusp of something, and it's that something. There's been no heir, there's been no Prince of Wales here since Henry VIII had three children. He had Edward VI and then Mary and Elizabeth. We've had no royal children for, well, in living memory. And this boy, sword half in, sword half out, as you say, he is ready to go and defend Protestant Europe. He is ready to present his country on a European stage. He has got in his mind very quickly as he grows to early adulthood, he's got an empire to build overseas. This is a very interesting period because we're in the middle of basically a hundred years of religious warfare in Henry's lifetime. We're bang in the middle of it. And He is being teed up to be the leader of Protestant Europe. Catholic Spain has suffered from what we would call imperial overreach, as empires do. And it's been on the back foot, but it's resurging again now. And it's wanting to roll Catholicism back across Europe. And they are looking to Henry to stop them. And that's partly what that semi-martial stance is with that sword out. It's just kind of think twice, think twice before you keep attacking my brother Protestants. They were very European, and they thought of themselves as members of Christendom before they were perhaps English or Scots or French. They are all members of Christendom. And so if something happens to one of your brother Protestant princes in Europe, you will go to his aid. And at home, a strong prince and a king and a queen, his mother and father, James the Sixth and First, and his wife Anna of Denmark, a strong king and queen, a full royal nursery that promises continuity. And continuity generally promises security. And security for your people promises prosperity and well-being the good of the commonwealth the common weal he
1: is here to hold the line for his people and protect his people he has to be built into this young man and that's something you go through here throughout the prince who would be king and I enjoyed that because today in movies we usually get that just as a montage a person becoming they have three minutes they have some old Rolling Stones song and they would show him learning to sword fight and and (laughs) things like that that he needs to know coming from an American perspective though my mother was born and raised in London I pictured the royal education as just one heavy on frilly things you know which of the 17 forks you use for a salad and then the appetizer and things like that. So I was surprised here to learn that Henry Stewart's life isn't something frivolous. His education isn't something that is just taken up with meaningless fluff. He really is working at it. You write in The Prince Who Would Be King, quote, to rule well, Henry said he must master four subjects, philosophy, eloquence, politics, and history. Those are still good goals for leaders today. If young people want to mm. grow into leaders, I don't know what four things your average millennial would list, but I, I don't think that philosophy, eloquence would be, maybe politics. <laughs> Certainly history is something that seems to, for the most part, fall by the wayside. Those are great fundamentals. So how did those around Henry Stewart go about helping him to cultivate those skills and and building his education so that when he did rise to be king, he wouldn't just be this strong king, but he would also be a wise king and a just king.
2: Yes, yes. Well, you see, we're right in the middle of the Renaissance as well. So you have to be a wise, just, eloquent civilised ruler. You've got to be a Renaissance prince, all things to all men. And you're right, when you point out our association with royalty today, those things you describe are basically ceremonial. And that's because monarchs, thank the Lord today, merely reign. They don't rule as well. But back in Henry's day, monarchs ruled as well as reigned. So it was in everybody's interest intensively to educate the Christian prince. The education of a Christian prince was of great interest to everyone because this is the man who is going to rule you or woman from the moment they succeed till the moment they die for better or worse. And things like history, they had rediscovered the classics in the Renaissance and they were fascinated by it. And using history as a lens through which to view the present. I mean, we would say these days, if you don't know where you're coming from, you don't know where you're going. And they certainly thought that. For example, their, Henry's tutors liked Roman historian, for example, called Tacitus. Now, Tacitus was newly rediscovered. And what he did was compare Rome under the Republican phase, the early phase of Rome's rise to greatness, when Rome is ruled by a Senate, full of senators, and the senior senator is simply primum inter pares, the first among equals, and he's ruling very much in council. Now, opposed to that, Tacitus placed Rome under the Caesars, imperial Rome, when you're ruled by a little god-king, a divinely appointed god-king called Caesar. And if you think of what's going on all through Henry's period, we're moving. There is a battle going on in politics and how we do politics and the rise of parliament, which is very much can be seen almost as a kind of an analogy for that Republican period of Rome, where conciliar government councils and leading men rule versus royal fiat and pronouncement from a divinely ordained king. And Henry is being brought up. His father, James, by the way, hates Tacitus because James is a divine right monarch. Although he's a good monarch and a clever monarch and a moderate monarch, he doesn't really want to be questioned. Whereas Henry's tutors are trying to bring him up so he will be a king in parliament and a forward-looking king, which... In that period, as I say, did mean he would very much rule as well as reign. And the bottom line of kingship in those days, to marry the two sides, the martial side we've been talking about at the beginning, and this intellectual side, his more academic education, the bottom line of kingship is when and how to make war and when and how not to. So he's got to be able to use diplomacy and the sword. He's got to be able to have at his court a military salon, keeping him up to date with advances in the military arts, the martial arts. But he's also got to be a very well-informed, intelligent, civilized king
1: who can make the right judgments. It's a big job, (laughs) a hell of a big job. Well, speaking of hell of a big jobs, you mentioned earlier about your own sons, and one of the reasons it drew you here, too, Henry Stewart and his story. How does this view of history, similar to how you parent, or if you just want to talk about the broader scope, what do you think parents can learn about raising a young person here from the example? If people don't think maybe they have something they can learn from a time so long ago, what's similar then and now as far as these Timeless things that he wanted to learn and the important things in life.
2: That's an interesting
1: question. I think maybe give them
2: responsibility, raise the bar, raise your expectations, raise them to engage with the world and with the serious business of society and the future of society and what kind of society you want to build, either over there with you in the States or over here with us in Europe. And, to have a sense of their responsibilities as well as their rights, and their responsibilities and their duty to society, as well as their rights as individuals. Because I suppose ever since the Romantic period, we have privileged the individual, you know, who am I, what is it I ought to be doing in the world, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And we are less inclined to think, what do I owe society, the society that supports and nurtures me, if I'm lucky. And I think it would be that it would be raising the bar on our expectation of them as social adults in the adult world.
1: Social adult sounds like a great phrase. I'm going to remember that because that's it's really something that's true. Just about all of us in general, I think we are a little bit stunted and that sense of well, maybe I have a destiny of some kind and maybe I want to go do this or that thing someday. But he's really working at it. And the fact that we are with him on this ride in The Prince Who Would Be King as he's making this climb literally to the top of the mountain, to see him get knocked off about not even a quarter of the way there, I guess, Mm -hmm. it feels like. If you see those people climbing Everest, you always read that they pass the dead climbers on the way up there, and (sighs) there's always a sense of mourning, right? And I feel like he's climbing and working so hard, and he only gets a quarter of the way there. Mm -hmm. So that's a real challenge. And I wanted to bring him to life here with one of the many tales that you tell in The Prince Who Would Be King to make those dusty bones speak to us a little bit young Henry is sailing on the Thames with friends and he's offering a unique toast of sorts. And it's really a beautiful thing. Now, this is something you think a, a prince would be doing. It's, it's really, really cool to me from the American perspective. Talk about that moment and how did it strike you when you came across it?
2: Yeah, well, I tell you what, just say one thing. When you say he's only quarter of the way through his life, they grew up fast because they died so early. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by the time he gets to his death, he's already on the Privy Council helping to rule. He has a court of 500 people around him and men like his friends and the poet John Dunn, they have already gone on diplomatic missions age 16. Wow! And that's really what I mean by raise the bar for our own kids. (laughs) Back to launching his ship. Do you mean launching his wonderful ship, the Prince Royal, Yeah. that big ship? Well, Henry realises, he learns from the great Sir Walter Raleigh that, as Raleigh says, whoever controls the seas, controls the trade. Whoever controls the trade controls the world, basically, because you will have control of the lines of communication and you will have wealth. And Henry is determined to renovate the navy. So it's part of that great navy that there was under Elizabeth, Drake and Raleigh and the sea dogs and the privateers. So he commissions a huge ship And when it's ready to be launched in about 1610, everybody goes down to Woolwich. The whole court decamps to Woolwich. And they go on board and it's in dry dock, as they are, as ships are now, ready to be launched. And they are ready to launch it. And a toast is made. The king and queen are there and everyone else. And the ship shudders forward and catches groaning on the wooden framework that's supporting it because this ship is so big and Raleigh has told him it's too big. But he's a young man, you know, nothing can ever be too big or too loud or too great. And Raleigh has said, you're going to regret this, sire. And it sits there. And that's classic. That's classic. A young man, again, has kind of overreached himself. He's overdone it without fully checking all the details. You know, they're not great on details sometimes. And everybody stands around getting a little bit embarrassed. And eventually the king says, I'm sorry, my son, I've got to go back (laughs) and rule the country. And off they go. And Henry thinks, well, blow this. I'm going to wait. Because at high tide on the Thames, which goes up and down by about 25 feet, you know, it'll raise the ship high enough and it can launch. So they all go downstairs and they have a heck of a party, Henry and all his friends. (laughs) And in the middle of the night, high tide's 2 a.m., a storm blows up. And they lurch on board and they've been having quite a good party by this time. And probably um, drink has been taken, as they say over here. <laughs> uh, drink has been taken um, and as well as food. And they go on board and he takes a huge silver bowl and he toasts his ship and they pass it round. And then he throws the silver chalice. Into the river. It's almost as if he's appeasing the river god (laughs) with this storm. It's like the tempest in King Lear's The Tempest blowing around them. And sure enough, the ship suddenly sails out into the Thames and it can go down the Thames. And he has a 32 gun salute. Let off, which must have startled the sleeping citizens of Woolwich. But (laughs) again, he's (laughs) inconsiderate. He's coming home noisy from a party, (laughs) as they do. And then he sets off and he is ready to sail the high seas. He chooses as one of his mottos, he delights to go upon the deep. And Henry does. You know, he had intended at one time, once Virginia was established, to come over to your country and rule as regent directly. That would have been quite a thing, wouldn't it? Wow.
1: For a while. Makes you wonder how things would be different, right? Yeah. So many things like that in a book like The Prince Who Would Be King where you say, it's full of what ifs. What if this young man doesn't die, unfortunately? And so it's, great read like that. It's really unique. And the fact usually we have these royal people, we know their beginning and their end, and it doesn't make us think as much about what might have been. And when you like somebody, you're rooting for them to continue to live. So Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that part of it, even coming from a position of ignorance about it and not really being invested in it. I was really rooting for him Mm -hmm. and learning so many things about him and then about the royal court at his time. Thank you. Something I found particularly surprising was that his family had to worry about money and security. You picture somebody who has no problems, has a lot of robes and jewels and chests, and you realize that's more stuff that we just pick up from movies So what were the practical challenges of grooming Henry Stewart's rise to leadership? Somebody's got to pay that bar tab for for those big parties that he has. And he worries at one point in The Prince Who Would Be King, I am like to prove an unthrift. Mm -hmm. So money is a concern you wouldn't think that this young man on the cover here has. But it is. How do they fund him? How do they pay his bills?
2: Yeah, you're right, including the bill for that great big ship. Yeah, And that didn't come cheap. Yes, you're right. There is a problem. There is a problem and it is inherited from the previous reign because what they inherited was a frugal old lady. Elizabeth had kept one court at Whitehall and suddenly it's meet the Stuarts. Now, what you've got is the royal family and the full nursery. But the price of that is you now have three courts. You have the main court of the king at Whitehall and two secondary courts. The Queen at Greenwich and Denmark House and Henry at St. James's Palace and Richmond Palace. And these all have to be supported. But Elizabeth also, during the Armada War, was quietly selling off. She was sort of cashing in the family silver, as it were. She was selling off some of the crown estates, the royal territories. So there is much more to support and much less to do it with. And all through this period, they are always chronically in debt, the royal family. They they are expected still, the phrase that they used at that time was, the king should live of his own, meaning to be self-supporting, oh. with grants if we go to war. They realise those are extraordinary expenses. All through this time, they're realising that the royal family is going to need, the monarch will need regular support from Parliament. And this is another way in for Parliament to get a grip on the royal family, because if they're going to be funded every year, Parliament will want to see value for money. So you can build a warship, but what you can't do, which is what his father does, is just splash the cash on your royal favourites to make them look pretty. (laughs) He can't be doing that anymore. They do all sorts of things. I mean, Henry is, they're all project mad. I mean, we call them entrepreneurs. Uh, we do call people entrepreneurs who are full of business ideas. They call them projectors. And projectors would come to Henry's court. And some were really good ideas. I mean, fuel efficiency, their furnaces were inefficient. And gradually, the fuel efficiencies were introduced into these furnaces. And he was he was asked to invest in a prototype for a new one. And there were crazy things like how to extract lead from silver, which is kind of a throwback to alchemy, I suppose. Hmm. But one of his household officers was a great friend of the magus, John Dee and the inventor Cornelius Drebbel. So it's a funny mixture of Henry investing in science, what we would truly recognize as science and scientific advance. He also, of course, was right behind the project to plant the British race for the first time permanently in American soil because what they had seen was Spain solve its money problems in the previous century by... Basically, exploiting their assets in South America and mining mountains of silver and gold and rising to global domination on the top of them until you got to Philip III, who could look around towards the end of the 1500s and say, The world is not enough. You know, I mean, he would know he'd got a lot of it. And Henry is thinking, OK, that is what we can do. And they imagine that North America is full of gold and silver in the same way. And so in 1607, he is one of the investors. He's called the patron of Virginia, the heir of Virginia. And they send those three boats, the Susan Constant and the Godspeed and another one. I've forgotten the name. And they make first landing at the place is called Cape Henry, still is today huh. in Chesapeake Bay, to honour his contribution. The first ever map of Chesapeake Bay is fabulous. It's about a metre long, nearly a metre deep. It's in the British Library here in London, and it was made by Henry's gunner for him. Hmm. It's vellum, so it was rolled up. And when you unroll it, the colours are still incredibly vivid. And all his dreams are projected into that and he partly thinks he will solve his financial problems somehow by monetizing America, if without offending you, I might put it like that. Sure. Thank you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what it was. He's a, here again, big dreams he has. And yeah. he's somebody who really has a plan. He has big ideas, dreams, and he's not going to be deterred. It's a really inspiring story and a colorful story, just like the map.
2: Mm, it's beautiful, the map's really lovely. You, anyone can see it. You just go in and, you know, ask, get it up. You can see it, you can touch it, you can pick it up,
1: just as he would have done 400 years ago.
2: Wow. I know.
1: Something to do next time I go. And next time I go to Westminster Abbey, I'll have to find him there too. Mm-hmm. You really feel like you know him and you want to go pay your respects a little bit.
0: Mm,
1: he's there. You're enjoying my chat across the high seas with Sarah Fraser, author of The Prince Who Would Be King. The Life and Death of Henry Stuart. You can visit her online at Sarafraser.co.uk and Sarah underscore Fraser UK. That's Sarah with an H, by the way. History Revealed magazine writes of the Prince Who Would Be King, quote, here he gets a whole book dedicated to his story, and it's certainly a tale worth telling. Son of James the Sixth and First, Henry was a key figure in his own right. He created a Renaissance court of writers and thinkers and worked to establish a permanent British presence in America. What he packed into his brief life and why it should be better remembered are explored in this compelling, lively biography. I chose that quote because it captured the excitement I felt reading The Prince Who Would Be King. The word lively, for example, about a figure dead those four centuries that you just mentioned about being able to go and hold that map, which is a relic now so old and yet to be able to touch it just as we feel we can touch him here in your book. We have to check ourselves as readers throughout each page because he did live only 18 years and he did live so long ago. That's a credit to you as a writer bringing him that much to life. Part of what brings that story so vividly to us as if he's somebody we could go and meet and shake hands with, although maybe we wouldn't shake hands with him since he's a royal person. I'm not sure what the etiquette would be, but he feels that real and touchable, (laughs) is you're familiar with and you write about in your book Guy Fawkes, infamous for the gunpowder plot to blow up Parliament, those people that are paying those bills. How does he feel about Henry Stewart and his family? And what will people learn about him and his plotting and scheming when they read The Prince Who Would Be King? They learned that it was a terror plot
2: of breathtaking audacity. Its intention was to destroy the entire political nation of England. It was going to blow up Parliament and kill everyone in it at the opening of Parliament. And of course, it was Essential that they kill Henry as well. As Guy Fawkes said, he admitted, I set out to blow you beggarly Scots back over your mountain because he, being Catholic, recognised that the establishment of another Protestant monarch after Elizabeth I meant they were a step further away, really, from the possibility of a Catholic restoration. And as Guy Fawkes also said, The king is important. We must assassinate the king. But the son that comes after him, are his words, is just as important or even more so. And a man called Father Edward Garnet, a Jesuit, in these exchanges of letters, they recognize that they must wipe him out. Because what, of course, Henry does, the king secures the present, but Henry carries the promise of an endless Protestant dynasty and they want to snuff that out right now. There are three Stuart children, Henry the eldest, the next is his sister Elizabeth, and then his youngest brother Charles. Although his mother gave birth to seven children, she'd lost four. And what they intend to do is kill all of them except the little girl Elizabeth, and she will be forcibly converted to Catholicism and then married off probably to some Spanish prince, and the countries of these islands would become a sort of Spanish puppet state. That's the big picture. Quite
1: a game they were playing. All that conflict between the Catholics and Protestants is mm-hmm. something that you hinted at at the very top. We get a, an inside view here of it. It's always hanging over this period, and it has its hands on Henry Stewart's parents. Where did they fit into this split? Because they have a unique background. Well, they
2: do. They do. They are a product of... A golden moment of peace. There is one short period of a few years when Europe is at peace. There isn't really anyone fighting with anyone over religious issues. And James and Anna really they illustrate that in that James is a moderate Calvinist. His wife, Anna of Denmark, is the daughter of a leading Lutheran. Protestant king, and she converts to Catholicism. And their children are brought up to be Calvinist Protestants. So they've sort of got a mixture of every Christian denomination. And it's perfect. That's viable that it is viable that the Queen would be what they call a court Catholic. So she could practice in private, but she would still go to Protestant services with her family. And it's a golden moment that is about to disappear because the truth is that lines are hardening and the countries of Europe are all through Henry's lifetime. They are lining up on opposite sides, split along religious lines. And just after Henry dies... The mother of all religious conflicts takes place. It's called the Thirty Years' War, 1618 to 48, and it is the longest, bloodiest, continuous conflict in Europe until World War I. In certain German states, half the population will die wow. for one reason or another. It's massive. And trying to head that off is James's purpose. So he chooses as his motto, King James, Beati Pacifici, blessed are the peacemakers henry chooses glory as the torch of the upright mind heroic deeds winning glory on the field of battle so you've kind of caught here the sermon on the mount meets onward christian soldiers <laughs> and they perfectly
1: illustrate the problem of europe at that time you titled chapter 12 of the prince who would be king Europe assesses Henry, a prince who promises very much. There's that word promise again that you Mm. feel throughout the book. I realized in a way we have much in common with those contemporaries of Henry in that we are imagining him on the throne. I was throughout reading the book. You want to read the sequel, I guess, so to speak, and find out what his reign was like, (laughs) but that's a book that will never be written. How does our modern image of this man who would have been King Henry IX match up with those people in the 1600s? and what they envision for him and what they hope for? Uh, pretty closely, I think, because that chapter
2: title you quote, He is a Prince Who Promises Very Much, is part of the diplomatic chatter of the time about him. That's the French ambassador to his king, Henri IV, Henry IV of France. And after Henry IV is assassinated, because although he's a Catholic, he was brought up a Protestant. And Protestant monarchs are always being bumped off in Europe at this time, sadly, huh. or they're attempted to be. See the gunpowder plot for that. Right. Europe is fixing on Henry and they like what they see. But what they see and what they hear, he is sending Some of the people he's grown up with from his court, once they reach the age of about 16, they can go abroad and be his eyes and ears. One man called John Harrington, who's his best friend, goes and is received in Venice as the right hand of the prince. He is going to be the prince's right hand man. Around the courts of Europe throng what they call intelligences i.e. men gathering intelligence and spies and informers and agents, basically. And they are all reporting on these princes because, as I said to you before, they rule as well as reign. So it's very, very important that they know what Henry is going to be like and what to expect from him. And in his letters to them, he is promising support. When there is one little premonitory shock arises – in a German state called Jülich Cleves, and it looks like this might be the kickoff of the Thirty Years' War. Henry is ready to lead the English forces to go and fight in that. He's just so ambitious. I mean, the Spanish are furious as one of the leading Catholic countries. You know, with his expansionism into America, they're astounded that the Prince of Wales is so active. And yet, in a way, they're not. They're just infuriated. (laughs) Yeah. And he is, as I say, by the age of 17, he sits on the Privy Council, which is the council that rules the country. There is the king and his Privy Councillors, and Parliament is very much definitely the secondary arena of power at this point. The council rules. The great ministers of state and the great magnates are in the council. And Henry's on it and wants to lead it. He asks to be made head of the Privy Council at the age of 17. And he asks to be created Prince of Wales in a state occasion. It's
1: a (laughs) quasi-coronation. Here he comes. He reminds me almost them watching him with the same dread that they would have watched that giant warship that he builds. Here it comes. It's stuck for a moment just because of his age, but he's coming and there's not much we can do about it. When the, when his tide rises, he's going to be on his way and he's just going to be tearing a strip across Europe, Mm. but he does die at only 18, Mm -hmm. all his potential, all the hopes that are invested in him are lost What do you hope your readers will take from this recounting of his life cut short? Because we can't draw the usual political theories and have those usual discussions. What do we take from somebody who's never a king but had so much promise to be a king? Well, in a big political picture,
2: you know, we're going to have what they call the civil war, the English civil war over here with Charles I, the king getting his head cut off, Oliver Cromwell, and that will be fought between the Puritans and the royalists, basically. Now, one of the things which we haven't had time to talk about is that Henry, as a devout Protestant, is very much a focus for Puritan feeling in the country. And some of those people who will go on to fight in the Civil War, opposing his brother, Charles I, are raised with Henry at court. So things would have been very different if Henry had lived I think he would have been a better, more parliamentarian king. We would not have had the civil war of the three kingdoms here. We would certainly have gone harder into the 30 years war because he would have tried to take on that mantle of bulwark. Of European Protestantism. I think there's no doubt about that. You might also have had him over in America, yes, as regent for a while, which would have been interesting. I mean, on a more frivolous level, you'd have had no Jacobites, no Bonnie Prince Charlie, and no Outlander, Mm. because the Stuarts would have stayed on the throne and they would be kings. That's what would have happened. I just don't think we would have had the end of the Stuart dynasty. I think it would have been a very different proposition. And I think also, As John Lennon said, you know, life's what's happening when you're making other plans. And it's just what you take away is this is what you can do with a life. You know, in 18 years, given the right stimulation, you're really motoring. You can really get a lot done. It's not that he did nothing. He did an
1: awful lot in his short life. I have one final question for you, and that's I'd like you to make a pitch to readers like myself who might not choose a book on A Forgotten Prince despite the penetrating look he gives us from the dust jacket. If people don't spot that, they they may not be drawn into him as I was. So why should they pick up the prince who would be king and meet Henry Stewart? Because I think that
2: he's one of the golden boys of history. I mean, golden boys like Icarus, like James Dean, they have a special place in our kind of mythology. The untrammeled, high-minded idealist. He knows nothing of the grey compromises of life, the negotiated life that the rest of us have to live. He is pure and untrammeled and we watch him soar across the firmament. Yes, he's going to crash, but there is something about golden boys. You know, they go marching off to war full of utter conviction and they are characters that make you kind of laugh with joy because of their energy and their confidence while you slightly dread what they might get up to (laughs) and because they're so active and energetic they offer a bloody good story I mean it's it's a good (laughs) lively life they lead and I think that's what you can get across in a book like this
1: Well, Sarah Fraser, author of what is a bloody good story and a very good book, (laughs) The Prince Who Would Be King. I said at the beginning of our chat and throughout that I'm certainly not a royal scholar, but I did thoroughly enjoy meeting the impressive prince, Forgotten No More. There's so much more in here than we had a chance to touch upon. Things like the symbolism of St. George slaying the dragon there Mm -hmm. in that painting. Things like you said about him being the focus of that Protestant feeling. But we can see Cape Henry in the Chesapeake Bay next time and feel a little connection to it. <laughs> I thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today and chat about his life cut short. I wish you the best of luck with the book and thank you again for introducing me to Henry Stewart.
2: It's a pleasure, Dean. Thank you so much. Yes, I enjoyed that too. That was lovely.
1: Again, the book is The Prince Who Would Be King, The Life and Death of Henry Stewart. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at HistoryAuthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to HistoryAuthor.com, we take it Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our giant warship turned time machine humming like usual so we never get stranded on the bottom at low tide. I want to offer special thanks to Sarah Fraser for joining us and for restoring this forgotten prince who seemed destined for greatness until his untimely death. And by the way you may have noticed we didn't talk about exactly how Henry Stewart met his end. Well, for that, you just have to read the book. It's important that we talked about his life today, and not just those last days when he unfortunately went to his grave without fulfilling his great promise, and seeing his many visions come to life. Visit our guest at sarahfraser.co.uk and sarah That's Sarah with an H, and Fraser is spelled F-R-A-S-E-R. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book, the prints, and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean, Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor, or our Instagram page. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us in 14 days for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week.
0: We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name?